This conversation with the multi-purpose Indian wise man Ashish Nandi is trying a sort of psychoanalysis of the idea of Pakistan, which he says was invented in India. This is number 21 in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden with the sage of New Delhi, Ashish Nandi. He's a sort of psychoanalyst of post-colonial nations, especially in South Asia. I came to ask him about Pakistan and the myth of Pakistan, which, as he once wrote, originates in India and dominates India's public life, too. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University. American conversation, global attitude, Pakistani focus in the monsoon rains of summer 2011. Ashish Nandi, it's a joy to see you again. I know you have your own study out on partition stories, memories of 1947 in people's minds even today. Just catch us up on your observation of this idea of Pakistan and how it's doing in 2011. Pakistan is a troubled country at the moment, but that does not mean that it is moribund, that it is a failed state. Um, It is not much of a state, subtly. Hmm. And I would also say that after 60 years, I find Pakistanis are still without a shared understanding of what Pakistan is. I mean, Hmm. for that matter, Indians do not have that either. But Indians have some kind of a tacit understanding, which is, you might almost call a default understanding of India. Which is? Which is India is a chaos, uh, functioning chaos, (laughs) (laughs) that everybody looks at India differently. But nonetheless, uh, there is place in India for everyone. So that's um, one thing Pakistan has not had. Because conventional nation-states are not easy to build. They require us to subtly blunt the ages of communities, if not destroy many of them. So the ultimate definition, self-definition the Pakistanis are left with is this, that Pakistan is what India is not. Mm. Pakistan cannot define it without referring to India. Previously, it had to do so for geographical reasons because the larger half of Pakistan was in Bangladesh. Yes. It had 55% of Pakistan's population. So even to draw the map of Pakistan, you had to draw the map of India. (laughs) That's strange. So, but even now, I notice in Pakistan that there is a all-round effort to use India to define its problems, Mm -hmm. define its distinctiveness, and define its future. Whether it's in cricket, or in economic development, or even in the definition of what Islam is or should be. When you go to Pakistan, how can you tell you're not in India? I mean, what, what are the... We've, we've been thinking about that ever, ever since we came to India. Uh, could you put your finger on, on what the difference is? Well, I feel quite at home, let me frankly admit. 
that Pakistan is one of the countries where I feel most at home. Hmm. Even though I am not a Punjabi, I am not from the North West, I am a Bengali. I, um, I do feel even more at home in Bangladesh. But Pakistan too, I feel very much at home. Pakistan is very much like Delhi. Delhi is a Punjabi city now also. Hmm. The only thing I miss is the vibrancy and the stridency, if I may say so. Hmm. Actually, the vibrancy comes from the stridency <laughs> of differing political opinions which articulated in public when uh, some of the political opinions um, are diametrically against the fundamental beliefs of the ideology of the state. What does it tell you? It intrigues me, but what does it tell you that Salman Rushdie honors two writers specially, Fez Ahmed Fez and Manto, as the models of his style, his ambition, his career in a certain way. Yes, I can well understand that. Both are extremely gifted persons. Uh, particularly Manto, I think, was perhaps, and is perhaps the most sensitive writer on the bloodshed of partition. Mm. And also on the inner contradictions of the Indian self. Um, I think he is the person uh, who has moved the mo me the most. Mm. Uh, he has moved me because there is a certain self-doubt in him. Mm. He is a man continuously trying to attack not only conventionalities, which everybody talks about, mm. but also certitudes. And I like that. I think he is the true prototype of the truth of South Asian. Really? And I would be very proud if somebody tells me that in my study of partition, I have tried to approximate very inefficiently, very partially, his kind of sensitivities. Hmm. His stories of partition, almost as it happened, uh are so fresh and powerful today. They move you, they move me, too. We've been asking all sorts of people to tell us their partition stories, inherited or remembered or whatnot, and to try to figure out where that horror story stands behind the headlines today or in, in the world of the imagination. I want to hear yours, and I want to know what you conclude about them. Can I volunteer that the net of the stories we've heard is that this is like uh, a terrible, terrible wound at birth. I mean, it, it, it sort of marks the child forever. He will limp, or she will limp, as long as she lives out of this experience. The fact that it's between siblings, too, is, is almost overwhelming. Well, I can understand that. I saw the beginnings of partition violence because it all started in Calcutta in 1946, August. Mm. Uh, and I was a child of nine and I must say that that has remained with me all these years. I never forgot that. I thought I had forgotten, but uh, when there was a pogrom against the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984, and I visited some of the localities affected, mm. gradually uh, all the memories came back to me. And uh, I think this is the case with virtually everybody in this part of the world, at least in the whole of North and East India, I cannot imagine anybody living without 
the memories of partition in some form or other indeed i will go to the extent of saying the partition memories are behind every diplomatic negotiations every every meetings which involves in india pakistan and bangladesh because something like that had not happened in living memory in this parts of india where it the violence broke out it was a implosion of the society itself subsequent riots in most cases uh, did not have the same power because usually they took place in cities often they were organized by politicians to gain some advantages here or inflict some damage on the other parties there partition violence was in many ways an implosion of the society because it was often spontaneous in many parts and uh, i do not think pakistani indian or bangladeshi society has recovered from it the most you can say is this that india because it is large because the entire southern part of india was not affected by this violence perhaps in large parts of india its impact was much less unfortunately in pakistan and bangladesh and north and east india story is very different they are haunted by that memory and even now they have not been able to negotiate this memories with any degree of confidence which side of the border were you actually born on i was born in, in eastern india and was brought up in calcutta uh-huh. so i was not a refugee i didn't suffer uprooting nor did my family and in any case we are neither hindus nor muslims <laughs> as at least one poet has said in india to be deprived of um, that uh, partisanship is almost a uh, how should i put it i forget his lines well it is a deprivation in any case <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which god do you worship remind me well i'm not a believer but uh, i belong to a christian family hmm. um and what does it do to you ashish nandi that bengal itself was divided as the punjab was divided hmm. well it is extremely tragic i do not think a division of a country by itself is a tragedy in all cases but this instance the division was introduced in such an unthinking heartless manner mm-hmm. in such short notice and with such ruthlessness that it became a particularly nasty experience at yeah. the it unleashed forces within the society which the new governments as well as the british indian army for that matter which was still here in india at the time was totally unable to contain and my feeling is this that along with the division of the country this violence and also perhaps the man made famine of bengal in 1943-44 were the three decisive memories for most indian intellectuals certainly in my part of india it is so and you can see the impact of these three events 
in not only literature but in the kind of constitution we have, in the kind of political culture we have, in the kind of anxiety which our quarrels with Pakistan or Bangladesh generate. Mm. Everywhere there is the mark of these memories. That sounds so right to me. And it's the first reason I wish <laughs> we didn't have this AFPAC name on the problem around here. The problem around here is Indopac, and it goes back to 1947 and that partition, seems to me. Everything. Yes, that is uh, perhaps true. Uh, you are onto something very important. Uh, in fact, Pakistan is so positive about Afghanistan because it thinks it helps them strategically to fight India. On the other hand, India has a traditional link with Afghanistan. Even in Mahavartic times, uh, there are mentions of Afghanistan. The Queen of Mahavartha came from Kandahar. When was that? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. Different dates are available. And By the way, the dates are not important either. Mm. I think uh, in this part of the world, we live by mythic memories. We don't live by historical memories. Mm. And in the mythic conception of India, there is a place for not only Afghanistan, but also large parts of Pakistan. And in Pakistan's mythic memory, there is a place for large parts of India. I mean, everybody talks of Pakistani textbooks of history being biased against India, including Pakistanis. But I find Pakistani textbooks also biased against Pakistan. They write as if there was no Pakistan uh, before 700 years, or no communities, no cultures, no history of the region before seven or 800, maybe a 1,000 years, before 1,000 years. And the Pakistani history books are full of uh, history of India. <laughs> they read more about India than about Pakistan. So what's to make of the men who did the partition as villains or heroes or incompetence or whatever? But I'm thinking specifically Churchill in the background, Mountbatten, Nehru, Gandhi, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. You can get the impression that none of those men were in fact provably deeply invested in the idea of two sovereign states with a border between them. It all seemed to happen a little bit by, by accident and by default. I think Churchill was certainly to blame because he was a true imperialist and he perhaps wanted the division as a good turn to the Muslims. He said so in so many words. But that's they, not the they, important they, part. The important part is the fact that all were captive to the age and their times. And I particularly hold the Indian leadership guilty because they couldn't think beyond a conventional nation-state. They could have thought of a much more open-ended system. They could have thought of a much more a system much more generous to the diverse um, hopes and ambitions mm. of their peoples. But they were so cocksure about everything that uh, ultimately they could not but end up with what they did end up. End up. But why do you say that? I, I, it, to me, it's still unclear why the cards went down the way they did. I mean, it, 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 it went down because neither of the parties, none of the parties involved in the negotiations could think beyond conventional European-style nation-states. Mm. They could not think beyond it, and therefore they couldn't make compromises which they thought would compromise with the basic axioms of a, a modern state system. And we now know that it, these axioms are not quite adequate for our times. 
and I have seen the same attitude in China for for uh, if it is any consolation right. uh, to my Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi friends. I have a suspicion that they were hell bent in reproducing a 19th century European style nation state because they thought that will negate the ills of colonialism mm-hmm. when they talked of independence what they had in mind was the right to build an european style state in india because that was the only feasible or viable form of state in the 20th century and this in a country where the national poet one of the two greatest sons india has produced tagore once said that to attempt to build a nation in india is like switzerland trying to build a navy <laughs> well, because we are a society of communities we are not a society of atomized individuals um, living mainly in urban spaces we have to have these communities and if there are communities the communities can could have been seen as intermediaries between the state and the individual it could have been a triangular relationship between state the communities and the individual whereas we opted for a, a direct relationship between the individual and the state because that was what proper nation states are like it sounds as if if jinnah had had a relationship of trust and cordiality and fellowship with nehru they could have worked this out even around a, a loose definition of a nation as a kind of community of spirit or imagination or whatever i mean jinnah was looking for something like that well f- frankly speaking it was not only jinnah that hmm. was that entire generation the basic model was the western style nation state and given the experience of europe there was also the tacit assumption that building a nation state requires large scale sacrifices in human blood mm-hmm. nation states have been built like that and they thought if it involved some degree of bloodshed that was normal and natural uh, frankly speaking more than the um, skepticism of jinnah what you call absence of trust i think nehru had a deep hostility to jinnah yes uh, be- partly because nehru's father motilal nehru was a great admirer of jinnah <laughs> uh, uh. it was almost an oedipal conflict to sibling rivalry whatever you want to call it uh, he was amongst the congress leaders the most hostile to jinnah even though jinnah was a very modern man and so was he and they fought like two functionaries of two nation states rather than as two visionary political leaders let me ask you in, in a very general way some people speak of the border between pakistan and india as, as a line that disappears as soon as you cross it that once you get to friends and family around a dinner table you're at home again others experience very different sorts of human clusters here and there what's your view i think those who are thinking of very di- different kind of human clusters are absolutely wrong and they know they are wrong borders are ultimately in the final analysis in the minds of people mm-hmm. all geographical borders all territorial borders begin in the minds mm-hmm. and end in the minds um, 
I suspect that it's everybody knows this. This is also a cliche. Everybody knows this, but they fear this cliche because they sense in the heart of ours that this is perhaps true. And if we lessen our vigilance, if we begin to behave as if the border can be less well marked, more mm. porous, more human, then we will perhaps face a situation when it will become too porous and we will lose control of the situation. On both sides of the border, this is the fear. I do think that it is possible to have a normal relationship with Pakistan like any other foreign country and perhaps more than normal in the sense that Pakistanis are our neighbours. There are a lot of continuities mm. over geographical and cultural terrain. This is also true of uh, India's relationship with Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh. Uh, it cannot be otherwise. Uh, India has always been the second country of a very large section of the humanity, traditionally. Second country meaning second favorite country? Not favorite country. You might hate it. But nonetheless, it is a part of yourself. Like the way United States is the second country for many people who are not Americans. Okay. Because that's the reference point. The second most, first reference point may be your country, but second reference point is United States. Um, I have a feeling that India was that kind of a country. Uh, when I was young, I studied with Burmese, Thai, Malaysians, uh, Sri Lankans. I even studied with some Pakistanis <laughs> who came, to st came back to India to study. That was possible. I India, in that sense, is an epitome of the world. It has traditionally been a place, because of its huge diversity and the kind of uh, freedom it gives you to build a niche where you locate yourself, uh, a place where many strains of culture survive mm. as uh, minority strains, if you like to call it so, but they don't think of themselves as a minority, they think uh, they are at the center of things. And uh, this characteristic of India, I would hope, will uh, come center stage over the coming decades. Yeah. The transnational, incredibly diverse nation of nations, India. It's not transnational because I think in most cases Indians don't even see them as outsiders. Um, they same see as a very uh, strange, peculiar kind of uh, esoteric Indians. Or so because whoever is, uh, comes from outside cannot be uh, more um, strange than some of the Indian communities themselves. Hmm. Ashishnadi, what, what is the general view, the informally almost official American view, I think, that we should see Pakistan as the home address of terrorism, of al-Qaeda, of jihadism, the most worrisome face of Islam? And then a Pakistani in Islamabad said to me the other night, this is the country that can kill the world. I mean, just sheer danger. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have seen other faces of Pakistan too, other faces of the Pathans or Pashtuns who have supplied us with Taliban and hosts of Osama bin Laden. They, they, Gandhi called them the finest non-violent freedom fighters of India. Not once, more than once. So there is another story yeah. which is no longer told. 
which seems very old-fashioned, uh, which doesn't seem to have a place in contemporary statecraft and con- contemporary political culture. I find that very odd. The human potentialities are not adequately recognized. I think we live with stereotypes, and once a stereotype becomes unfashionable, then pick up another stereotype. But there is another way of looking at it. The, the potentialities that are inherent in some of the cultures in this part of the world have never been fully explored. People are afraid of them, so much, become so much nervous and afraid by the darker side of human nature that they do not like to know of them. They, they think that's a compromise with realism. That's a compromise with statecraft. That's a compromise with modern ideas mm. of uh, disaster management. I want to try out another general handle on Pakistan. Two different artists, one a writer, one a painter, uh, said, no, look at Pakistan as the future. It's also where the United States is trending, and not in a good way, but a trend toward inequality, toward a kind of fanaticism, a kind of militarism, a tremendous waste of wealth and privilege, kind of headlong power state in a very, very unequal society. It's very true. Partly Pakistan was built because the Pakistani elite, as well as the Muslim elite in India, were afraid that a democratic regime will impose limitations on their economic power. And Pakistan is paying for that. Pakistani democracy uh, is barely a functioning democracy. The Pakistani civilian authority has not been able to impose its will on the army, which is a law unto itself. Pakistani Muslim radicals believe only they understand Muslims, all the other Muslims are flawed Muslims. And there is no leader of the stature who can speak on behalf of other kinds of Islam, which Pakistan is, should have been quite capable of generating that kind of leadership. Because Pakistan did have that kind of Islamic scholars and thinkers. Unfortunately, Pakistan has not even lived up to its compact with itself, what to speak of with others. It also occurred to me that Pakistan is in some ways suffering the revenge of the 20th century, specifically the revenge of the 1940s and the partition process and a kind of failure of leadership to finish the job in a, in a union of India. And then the revenge of the 1980s, when it got drawn by the United States into you know, an American war against the Soviets in Afghanistan, there was Saudi money there, Wahhabi Islam, all manner of guns, the Zia regime, which cracked down on all sorts of liberties, but married the mosque too. It's all coming home to roost. I will go further. I will say Pakistan also acting out the revenge of the southern world uh, against European colonial powers because uh, from the early part of the 20th century, even the late 19th century and early part of the 20th century, the way nations were carved out, nation states were carved out in West Asia, Africa too, you can see from the maps themselves, the way straight lines 
and the boundaries are of an last straight line as if they have been drawn mm. on a map and then divided countries or created countries or undone countries and made countries and so on and so forth there's there was some limit to it all the four partitions the british that was the british solution right if there is a problem just draw a line on the map right let's divide the two and that's that that will solve the problem this is so mindless so unthinking i mean this is the what you might call the ultra positivist british concept of statecraft right. the all the four partitions palestine ireland cyprus and india right. all the partitions have been bleeding for decades cyprus has now quieted down i think this is too small an island to be busy shedding each other's blood they are tired of the bloodshed and that's why probably it is quiet but palestine ireland has just now seems to be quieting down the palestine and south asia are still bleeding mm. that's the way things go when you are not sensitive where all cultures are seen as subjectivist myths one other thing about the connection with the united states the united states has used and maybe abused pakistan rather unmercifully but in the process seems to me Pakistan has played a sort of evil bad buddy of the United States a sort of the sort of friend that our parents wouldn't want us to have <laughs> yeah, perhaps but then uh, America promoted that kind of forces within Pakistan yeah. whether it's the Taliban or the or the Muslim fundamentalists every possible weapon was honed and oiled to oust Russia Soviet Union from Afghanistan right. and now we are paying for that whole world is paying for that including united states itself right and mm. i do not see any soul searching in united states is a very is another country which is very self certain uh, is almost afraid that if we look within uh, we will uh, lose ourselves <laughs> mm. um, maybe it's a country which believes that uh, no great country looks too much within that's dangerous i i i think america is paying for its shortsightedness and i do believe that like individuals countries which do not look within are dangerous entities america fortunately still has some amount of self critical um, faculties personified in its best thinkers scholars writers unfortunately it is not a quality which is shared by many of the others i should not sum it up in the midsummer of 2011 the world is worried about pakistan pakistan's worried about itself there're a lot of business folk parents middle class people who who we met who who wonder if they'll be there in 6 months not to mention 5 years um what's your what's your most general sense of where it's going I think it will hobble through the present crisis but it will take years perhaps something like two generations mm. to really recover from its present state because the militarization and the dehumanization of the society the brutalization that this generation has seen cannot be easily erased the memories will linger the memories of the killings the memories of the atrocities 
this will all remain with them for at least two generations that's my suspicion and for those two generations for good or for worse the world will have to bear with pakistan not forgetting that pakistan still produces exceedingly sensitive brilliant writers musicians journalists and even sometimes social workers and political functionaries i only hope that the courage of this dissenting intelligentsia and creative pakistanis can continue to find a place within pakistan and pakistani society benefits from that one more general theory the manto theory manto told all those shockingly violent stories of partition but also sort of heartbreaking human stories manto is full of a spirit that this kind of experience breaks people could even break a nation that it's an unbearable sort of agony back there yes that is true but if i can use a snippet from the study we did we interviewed roughly 1500 people uh, most of them who come from uprooted from pakistan but also included people uprooted within india because of the partition violence one of the most significant larger findings 40% said that either they themselves have been directly helped or they have heard of others being helped by somebody from the other side i defy you to find in any other genocide anywhere else in the world even a vaguely comparable figure there is that part of the story too you're trained in treating people who've suffered the way pakistan has suffered what's the therapy for nations i don't know i'm not probably trained truly for therapy i was more a, a psychoanalytic uh, psychologist or you can call me a psychoanalytically oriented psychoanalyst psychologist i have learned a lot from um, the old man <laughs> but uh, i think we have all something to learn from this that what we saw during the partition was ultimately not only the pathology of rural india and urban india for that matter but also the forces that can be mobilized for a different kind of effort to yeah. fight the violence uh, i think my study of partition violence has made me more respectful towards ordinary indians and pakistanis mm-hmm. and i would in future be more open to the multi-layered selves yeah of people in this part of the world perhaps people everywhere are you a believer in truth and reconciliation the telling of stories the venting of things? i think stories do lead to reconciliation but there is unfortunately also the widespread belief in the modern sectors of our societies that these stories should be avoided because quicker the people forget them the better it is for intercommunal relations i think that is a very short-sighted view because i have found that often 
the direct victims are more open more compassionate more human than their children and grandchildren who get the stories packaged from their parents and from journalists interesting because the direct victims have lived in muslim majority or hindu majority societies they know the other community well they know that there was this aberration but they also know the other side of the story that is not forgotten ashish nandi it's such a joy to sit and listen to you you could do this country by country around the world thank you so much thank you for letting us back in and let us back in another summer too subtly you are welcome any time <laughs> thank you Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in New Delhi with the psychosocial cultural analyst Ashish Nandi. Our series Another Pakistan is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zarmine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan. Thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Aman Ki Asha peace effort between Pakistan and India. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feedback your views. Your Pakistan with a comment on our website radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Lydon. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation. 